Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast, where we dissect some of the biggest stories and issues we've been covering on Women's Agenda from the past week. My name is Angela Priestley. I am the publisher of Women's Agenda, and I'm with my fellow co-founder on Agenda Media and Women's Agenda, Editor-in-Chief, Tyler Lambert. Hello, Tyler. Hey, Ange. How's it going? It's going as good as can be expected. It's going well. So this week, we interview former Liberal MP Julia Banks, who opens up on her time in politics and what she thinks needs to change to better support women. We're also looking at some highs in women's sport across the business world and elsewhere. And finally, we are going to end on our lockdown screen suggestions because where else would you turn to for advice on how to spend precious viewing moments on your screens during this period if you are in lockdown? And even if you are not in lockdown, where else would you go to? But us, Tyler, right? Oh, we have got some absolute pearlers for you (laughs) highbrow suggestions coming your way thank you for listening hello tyler hi Ange. how's it going i'm good i'm good i'm in my car because kids lockdown (laughs) (laughs) yes this car has served me well over the years particularly trying to yeah manage and run a business with young kids (laughs) publishing there's been many a times of just especially with kids that don't sleep during the day, they have to sleep in cars. So it's a new home that. office option. It is a new home office option. Definitely <laughs> gives you a little bit of quiet just for a moment. So, how are you going? What is happening on Women's Agenda this week? Uh, there's been a fair bit. Obviously, it is NAIDOC week this week. So, we have been celebrating that. And basically, the, the theme of NAIDOC week is around heel country. Um, so, we've been checking in with a, a diversity of female Indigenous leaders who have been sharing their perspective on what that means and how Australia could actually get to that point, and especially, you know, around climate action specifically. And um, so, that's been really amazing and and their thoughts are are shared across our Instagram page but we'll also be writing a feature up on Friday Um, and we've got a podcast in the works with Linda Burney who is the first ever uh, woman elected to the House of Representatives, first ever Aboriginal woman I should say, um, elected to the House of Representatives and she's going to share some insights on you know where she really feels um, funding and resources need to to go um, and also, you know, explore that that notion of healing country as well. And we have another interview lined up with Tanya Hosh, who is the Social Inclusion General Manager at the AFL, um, and she'll be speaking to Madeline Hislop around, you know, what that means in sport as well. So um, some really exciting things in play for NAIDOC week, but we've also been following the Sydney lockdown and there have been a, a few other little tidbits on site. What have you been looking at? Um, so that so by the time people probably listen to this episode, that feature might be there on our website. So please do look for it. And you'll also we're, we're going to get that other podcast out in the next couple of days as well. So watch out for that interview with Linda Burney that Tala is doing. I think shortly after we record this one. Um, so I guess we also like to go to wins for women each episode. So Tyler, um, what, I mean, I've seen a few things, uh, I'm trying to remain as optimistic as I can at the moment, because if you are in Sydney, if you are one of the millions of people in lockdown, it's, um, you're probably looking at the numbers at 11am each day. And you're also kind of contending with the idea of, Uh, homeschool, or should I say remote learning, or as I like to put it, crisis learning that we'll be venturing into 
next week, venturing back into next week. Uh, so some positives, some wins. Bring them to Tala. <laughs> well, your, for your boys, it should just be called Minecraft learning. Um, <laughs> hey, I know. No, they don't play any Minecraft at all, Tala. None at all. You should see the worlds that they build in there. It is so creative and amazing. I think, it's, I think it's a really cool game. I, my my nieces and nephews are all over it as well, and I'm I am all about it. Um, but look, a win for me this week, yes, it has been a bit of a struggle for a lot of um, people in Australia, especially Sydney siders this week. And, um, you know, we're, we're always thinking of you. I'm actually up North now. I was in Sydney before, but, um, escaped just before lockdown. Um, and yeah, I, I can't imagine, you know, how hard it is, especially with young kids and um, for teachers returning to work as well. There there are some really acute stresses going on. So yeah. um, um, I might just put some context around the fact that you said escape because that doesn't sound good. I might just say Tala didn't escape. Tala has moved to a new home. <laughs> so she has left Sydney and she has moved entirely, a move that was 100% on the agenda well before Sydney's lockdown. Yeah. So. yeah. Yeah, please don't come after me, authorities. Um, okay, so thank you for providing some context to my situation. Um, a little bit of a win for me this week. Actually, I think it's a pretty big win. Um, we're looking at the Tokyo Olympics and there it's been announced that there will be a record number of women competing in the Tokyo Olympics um, and also Indigenous athletes. Um, so that's ex- so exciting. So the Australian team for the Tokyo Olympics Um, has 472 um, people confirmed to play at the Games. Uh, Ash Barty, who's the world number one in tennis, is set to become the first Indigenous athlete to represent Australia in tennis. Um, And Thomas Grice will be the first Indigenous athlete to compete in shooting. Um, But there have been, you know, a range of um, awesome kind of stories and announcements surrounding the game. And I think our team is just shaping up to be a world-class one. So, um, you know, even though there's a little bit of contention around the games itself and um, whether or not, you know, it's the best thing for it to move ahead, I, I think it's really exciting that we do have um, such a, a epic team who are about to compete in them. Yeah, it is. And I might just say Ash Barty, I will be staying up late tonight to watch her in the semi final of uh, Wimbledon. Um, I, I, just, I love Ash Barty so much I, and we know our audience loves Ash Barty as well because she is such an awesome winner. Like she just is so humble and, and beautiful on court in the way obviously that she plays tennis but also in the way in her post-match interviews, in the way she engages with the other athletes and players and she is as wonderful as she is winning as she is also losing. You know, all the time she just is so lovely in her approach post those matches and I think that's why we love her so much because there's so much bad behavior in tennis Um, and to see somebody like that who is number one who can act like that and still be successful and you just think yep there is there is definitely something to be said for for people who stay nice on court yeah she's a bit of a beacon of hope I think at a time when sport in general can be a little bit grating especially when we see stories like the one coming out of the NRL this week with players having a, you know, a lockdown party, uh, Jack DeBellin hiding under a bed 
Um, we know there's so much misbehavior from certain male athletes that women like Ash Barty are just, you know, really making us all feel proud. Yeah, and, and she's also aiming to win a Wimbledon title. It would be the 50th anniversary of um, fellow Indigenous Australian Yvonne Goolagong-Coley's first win. So, I mean, that's something to note anyway that it is the 50th anniversary, but what a moment to see Ash Barty going into the semifinals. And I don't know where this goes. By the time we listen to this, maybe it would have gone further, but regardless, she made it to the semifinals. That's awesome. Yeah. So... Wins from me, um, I guess in the business world, I wanted to look at uh, KPMG, which has just announced this new paid parental leave policy. So KPMG will be offering 26 weeks uh, full pay for all new parents, regardless of any kind of primary or secondary status. You can take it flexibly. Um, you don't have to have worked there a year or five years to receive that full amount. There's no tenure requirements. You start working at KPMG, male, female, primary, secondary, whatever kind of parent, whether you adopt surrogacy, whatever, however you bring a child into the world, uh, you get that 26 weeks leave, which is pretty awesome. He's also They've also extended compassionate leave for staff who are facing miscarriage and stillbirth. And they've looked at other leave requirements so that basically – you can float public holidays. So you can transfer existing public holidays to other points in the calendar that have cultural or religious significance to you. And they also announced that Indigenous employees will be able to access cultural and ceremonial leave in order to participate in significant dates and events. I think it's great also because KPMG are out there advocating for changes to the government paid parental leave scheme. Yeah, I love that they're exerting a bit of pressure on the government as well. It's like it's one thing to be a big kind of heavy-hitting organisation and make these policies um, and put them in place yourself, but then to exert that pressure on government and to make them, you know, to really call government out for not doing enough to support uh, Australians who want to be taking um, paid parental leave and should should be able to take adequate paid parental leave I think is is really good. And I think more big businesses are doing that Um whether or not the government listens is another thing, but I think it is really encouraging to see that organisations are, are holding government to account. Yeah, it is encouraging because it's so important that we we shift that government paid parental leave because I love seeing these big wins in these big employers and we're always reporting on them and they're stories that people love to see. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I'm, I'm always conscious of the fact that, you know, only a small proportion of parents work in those sorts of organisations. We need to make this accessible for parents working kind of anywhere, running their own businesses, working in small businesses. These are the people who tend to really miss out when it comes to um, being able to access uh, paid parental leave. So, Tala, we're about to segue into your interview with Julia Banks, but let's start with a little bit more about, you know, she just did an interview with 7.30 last night and we've also seen just today uh, new polling from the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age looking at how uh, the coalition is kind of losing its touch a little bit with uh, women. That is putting it kindly, Ash. Very kind, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, so, look, a little bit of background on Julie Banks and I won't give away too much because, as you said, we've got an interview with her coming up. But essentially she's written this book. Uh, it's called Power Play um, and it's really about what she endured as an MP um, in a coalition government and particularly those three months under Scott Morrison's leadership, which she actually described as the most gut-wrenching period of her entire career. 
And so she has really courageously detailed events that happened, um, the bullying that she was subjected to, the sexual harassment that she was also subjected to, and she has put together a roadmap of, of where she hopes things will go and what prospective women looking for careers in politics need from a, a government that's serious about women's issues. But she is, she doesn't hold back. She she is, you know, pretty emphatic about the mistreatment that she kind of dealt with. And I just, I really thank her because I, I, I just think it's a really difficult, challenging thing to come forward and speak like this. We know that and as she notes that Scott Morrison is the king of reconstructing a narrative and in her case when she stepped aside from the Liberal Party that narrative was around how she was too weak to handle what was going on. She was too weak to handle the coup against Malcolm Turnbull and that was really nothing to do with it at all Um, and so we'll, we'll go into that a little bit more. Um, but as you said about the polling, the government and Scott Morrison are really going to uh, struggle to find some sure footing before the next election, which is going to happen next, early next year. This new research from Resolve Strategic conducted by the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age found that the government has fallen from 41 to 37 percent in their primary vote since last election. And it's a considerable threat to the Prime Minister who must somehow inexplicably kind of win back that female vote and I just do not see how he's going to do that given the the kind of torrent of allegations that this government has faced and not only that but his absolute mishandling of of pretty much all of them and the fact that not one MP who has been accused of bad behaviour in this government has faced any real consequence. Tala, I feel like I... I'm a little bit more pessimistic about the results of those that poll um, than than you were. I guess I looked at that, and it certainly did make for some big headlines to see that clear drop in the female vote and the female primary vote. One thing there is that Scott Morrison does have a clear, um, a very favourable advantage over the opposition leader Anthony Albanese when it comes to being preferred prime minister. So he's at forty five percent to 22 percent among female voters and 49 percent to 26 percent among male voters so you see a very stark gender difference there but then at the same time he is still coming up as the preferred pm i think that's true but ultimately oppositions are typically on the back foot when it when it comes to preferred prime minister that that's been historically true of any period in political history but that's 49 to 26% among men. The gender difference there in terms of favourability, it's just really interesting. Like men are not obviously seeing it the way that women are seeing it. So, No, I think that's true. But, I mean, at the end of the day, women comprise 51% of the vote. Um, and at any rate, Scott Morrison is, is really being hauled over the coals and he is being put on notice by Julia Banks, um, and rightly so. All right, let's cross into that interview now. Julia, thank you so much for joining me today and a greater thank you for sharing your story. 
Um, Since you left politics, the government has been plagued by allegations of misconduct toward women, but you were really one of the first people to call it out. What motivated you to do that and what was the impetus to go further with this book? Well, Tara, it's a good question because, as you would know, I called out this the entrenched anti-women workplace culture back in 2018 when I first issued my statement just after the leadership coup that saw Scott Morrison installed after Malcolm Turnbull. And in that statement, I said, you know, the coup was the last straw. But fundamentally, I'd experienced, witnessed and observed sexism, ageism, racism throughout my term. And my belief is that the leader defines the culture. And in many ways, when Malcolm Turnbull was in power, a lot of the sexism particularly came from the Victorian forces. And Malcolm Turnbull you know, he's an avowed feminist. He certainly served as a buffer when when things went wrong. For example, with Barnaby Joyce, he actually took real action. After the, the coup, I just I just felt the party was mired in these political entanglements. And I basically felt that my values weren't aligned to Morrison. But I was going to do it the polite way. I had every intention to just announced that I wasn't going to recontest the next election, but I also really wanted to continue my advocacy on um, important matters such as gender equality, climate change action and humanitarian matters. But at every step of the way, right from the get-go from Morrison, during that three months when I was under his leadership, there were attempts to basically silence me. And stop my voice. There is a widespread public acknowledgement now that Parliament is a toxic place for women. Um, yeah. And it took him a while, but the PM promises he's listening and attempting to right wrongs. Do you believe yeah. that at all? Well, I don't actually, because um, from my experience back in 2018, for example, he said he was going to have an inquiry. No one's really sure where that inquiry went. Both the parties said that they had a process and it was almost like this duopoly of power had agreed on this process for reporting complaints, but the process was an internal reporting of complaints. And certainly, again, in my experience, I wasn't the only woman during that coup week who called out the toxic workplace culture. For example, Linda Reynolds had called it out as well when she was in the Senate, but it seemed that every woman who stayed on and after they'd met with Morrison, then they said, oh, no, we deal with this internally. So there was there was nothing done then. And then post Brittany Higgins and the cascade of events that have come out of Parliament House this year, you know, we've had any number of announcements about inquiries that have gone nowhere. And the respect at work from my point of view and from a lot of people's point of view, submission was very comprehensive, extensively well done, and it had been languishing on Christian Porter's desk since March 2020. Nothing was done about it. It was only under after intense public scrutiny that, again, we had a big announcement that, oh, yes, we're going to implement some of these recommendations, but we're only going to note others of them. And you know, they, it was such a missed opportunity anyway um, because, you know, one of the key ones is to put a positive duty on the employer to eradicate sexual harassment in their workplace, uh, whereas now the the law stays the same, basically. It relies on women to report these instances. And, you know, 
we've actually not seen any substantial change. We've seen so many names, no accountability for the names. You know, they're all still in Parliament last time I checked, except for Andrew Lemming. And, uh, of course, we know that, um, you know, Andrew Lemming was encouraged not to stand and the pre-selection over the weekend out of four women and one man, the guy, who, the person who gets selected is the man who's supported by Amanda Stoker and who has a history of... Um, you know, fat-shaming women. I mean, I just sort of rest my case, really. Yeah, they sure know how to pick them, don't they? I want to go into some of the specific examples of bullying that you note in your book. Uh, In one part, you describe the PM as a menacing, controlling wallpaper, especially when he became aware that you planned on stepping away from the party. Do you feel he was trying to intimidate you into submission at this time? Oh, absolutely. I feel what he want, what he wanted me to do. Um, so he was in a tricky situation because he needed my vote, but at the same time, I felt he was he was obviously concerned that I had been outspoken, and he uh, wanted to silence my voice. He, he offered me to go to New York, which I didn't. You know, he said, uh, you know, three months, all expenses paid, New York as our UN delegate. I said, I'm not going to New York. Um, impliedly said, you'll get a ministry in the next round. I said, it's not about that. I've made this decision. And I, I kept saying, I'll still support you. Like he was annoyed, clearly, that I hadn't voted for him in the first round. I'd voted for Julie Bishop. I was one of only 11 people who voted for Julie Bishop and I understand I was the only woman who voted for Julie Bishop. Um, He was annoyed about that and he really didn't want me to announce it. I'm assuming that was because if um, I'd issued that statement later in that year, like many other MPs did, then they could have, he could have continued that narrative that, you know, she's leaving for personal reasons. He, the one thing I say is that he's very good at controlling the narrative and he 100% did that to me in my view because he just kept insisting kept insisting on time giving him the gift of time if you like and we finally agreed on 24 hours and then I found out subsequently that the PMO's office were backgrounding against me. They were saying that I was an emotional wreck and you know leave her alone to the media. That's what you know, I'd heard uh, from the media and some sections of the media and um, um, some journalists and some MPs. And, uh, of course, that just aligned to his narrative because his first doorstop press conference after I issued that statement, after the 24 hours, you know, what do you think of Julia Banks not recontesting? And he just went into, you know, all I care about is Julia's welfare. What am I doing right now? I'm checking in with Julia. I'm making sure she's okay. And I remember looking at the television thinking, why is he saying it like that? And he, he just kept saying my first name the whole time. It was it was like your classic gender stereotype, you know, the weak petal. And then when I kept speaking up, I think, I think a, a few days later when we went back to Parliament, I made a speech about quotas. Um, Then I get more, you know, attacks coming from everywhere, social media, from people within the party, etc. And then I made a speech about saying that I totally wanted the children in uh, Nauru to, you know, that indefinite detention is no place for any child. And at every point, 
um, I either got directly admonished, if you like, or um, this narrative created uh, went from I'm a weak petal to the bully bitch and the crazy corporate woman and all those things. Yes. I mean, you've spoken a bit and now about the few Liberal women um, still in government who were influenced by Morrison to stay quiet on issues of equality and power. Do you feel, having reflected on your own experience, that 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 bullying behaviour from the Prime Minister, that those women are probably being subjected to the same kind of conduct? Well, my perception is that Morrison's very good at the quid pro quo, which indeed he tried to do with me. The difference, I think, with me is that I didn't want to take any of his offers. Um, You know, for example, the um, trip to New York, Anne Sudmalis spoke out about bullying and the next day she was on her way to New York. So I really believe that Liberal women, uh, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. If you do, you'll get treated the way I've been treated. And if you don't, they'd have to deal with, under Morrison's leadership, with a culture that I wasn't prepared Mm. to to stay in. In the book, you also open up about an incident, a pretty harrowing incident, in which a senior cabinet minister sexually violated you at a public event and he ran his hands up your thigh, um, something you called astoundingly brazen. You speak in the book about the notion of power and ask the question that if this could happen to you, uh, someone on a similar level playing field as that that cabinet minister, um, what would be happening to young women subordinates within um, this government? Do you believe sexual misconduct like this is commonplace and accepted in the halls of parliament? And and are the leaders aware and complicit to that? Oh, I Definitely think it's commonplace. I think it would happen every day in our federal parliament house. You know, and it's not to say it doesn't happen in corporations, but in business, the business world has really, you know, I saw a transformational change. I had 25 years in business and five years in politics, so it wasn't a political, a career politician by any stretch of the imagination. And by introducing structures and mechanisms, certainly the corporate world has improved. But in, in Federal Parliament House, yeah, absolutely, I think it it um, it does go on all the time. But there is absolutely nowhere for the, uh, women to go. And I'm not just talking about the MPs. I'm talking, uh, in fact, I'm more talking about staff or press gallery journalists or people who work in that place who don't have that sort of uh, similar power or status or position up against, you know, the lawmakers against these male MPs who conduct themselves in this way. Obviously, when it comes to the representation of women, the coalition is falling short. Do you feel that that plays a significant part in the this kind of archaic culture? Absolutely, 100%. I think it is a key, key issue. I think the Labor Party have done a fantastic job with their quota system, which they introduced in the mid-90s. They're now almost at 50-50. You know, I know I can't speak for the culture within the Labor Party because I can't speak for that, but I, I do know from experience that numbers do count and having women in gender equal leadership, powerful positions, changes the conversation, changes the dialogue, 
changes the culture and it, it's a key element. And if you used an example of profession that I used to work in in the legal sector, the Dyson Hayden allegations that came out last year, you know, um, Kate Jenkins herself said it was no coincidence that our High Court bench is 50-50, male and female, and our Chief Justice is a woman. And the Respect at Work um, submission proves this as well, that a woman is more likely to tell another woman about these issues and um, and that will in turn ensure that there will be advocacy for things like a whistleblower system. You know, I think it's a really, really important matter and at the end of the day it's you know I've worked with CEOs throughout my corporate career and it's those CEOs who have the leadership and the accountability to say we've actually got to do some constructive changes here we've got to introduce targets for example and now targets work in business because you can incentivize them to salaries but you obviously can't use targets in federal politics, but you can use quotas. I mean, you know, Barnaby Joyce is a quota. The coalition agreement is the quota. So, you know, they have quotas by geography and quotas in respect to the, the Nationals members in Cabinet, um, but they've just got this obsessive resistance to quotas in the Liberal Party. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Scott Morrison himself has acknowledged that quotas um, might be something to look to in the future and it's something he's open to, allegedly. Again, do you believe that? And do you think that, you know, the coalition will ever get to that point where they are implemented? I don't believe him for a minute. I I remember when he made that statement, it's very different to saying I've changed my mind, I believe in quotas and we will implement it to saying I'm open to quotas. I, I believe he said that as a distraction from everything else that was going on so then, you know, Liberals could come out and say whether they believe in quotas or not. And I'm told that the only time the Liberals were going to seriously consider quotas was if they had lost the last election because uh, that's when the whole women's problem was resurfacing back then. But I just think that was really nothing more than a PR statement. I, It's very easy to say you're open to quotas, but if you're the Prime Minister and the decision maker, it's uh, much better to say something more definitive and constructive. Yeah. I mean, I think it goes back to your point about how any minister in this government who has been accused of, of sexual misconduct is still sitting uh, in Parliament at the moment and there haven't been any consequences, there's no accountability, so it goes back to that that point. Um, you can say everything you want but but really we need action. Yeah, exactly right, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, in your mind then, Julia, what does need to happen for that culture to be stamped out? How, how can future generations of women in the Liberal Party feel comfortable about a career? Well, look, I think a mandatory quota system needs to be implemented across our parliament because certainly at the moment, um, you know, if you're a Liberal voter, you're severely underrepresented in our federal parliament. I think that's the first thing. The other thing is that there needs to be accountability at the leadership level and we need to see more action than sending someone off to empathy training. I mean, whatever that is, I have no idea what that is. (laughs) But we need to see actual real consequences and making the tough calls. But the most important thing is we need a system which sits outside the parliament where women can truly feel 
comfortable and confidential about reporting their matter and that that matter is managed appropriately while still protecting them. Do I think that's going to happen under Morrison's leadership? No, I I actually don't. And I've said that, you know, from my point of view, we've had all these announcements about all these various inquiries that have gone nowhere and we've even now got a special independent inquiry that's being run at the moment. It's being conducted by Kate Jenkins. I have the absolute respect for um, Kate Jenkins' impeccable professional credentials and personally, on a personal level as well. But uh, we, we didn't need this extra inquiry. Parliament House is not a special sort of workplace that needs special attention. All they had to do was get the respect at work, very comprehensive, excellent submission, and overlay it in Parliament House and actually implement these procedures. And if they were to implement them, they'd have to be genuinely independent. As I've said publicly, I feel so strongly about the respect at work while um, submission being implemented. I just think this other one is taking up time. It's putting enormous pressure on on women in parliament. They don't need to have to do that. And I know many of them don't trust the process when this report is, which is ultimately submissive to the government, to the Morrison-Joyce government, and it will be submitted to them for review. So from my perspective, I've been invited to participate in this review and I'll be sending Kate Jenkins a copy of my book and asking them to integrate that and to accept that as, as my submission because I feel comfortable telling the inquiry but I don't feel comfortable, you know, any further details over and above uh, what is in my book, such as names and all the rest of it, because I don't feel comfortable once that, I wouldn't feel comfortable once that report is handed over to the government based on my experience. That's a truly worrying and daunting admission from you. There's a lot of people that will have picked up your book by now. I've heard from my publishers that a lot of people are ordering it, which is good. <laughs> I got lucky then. I got a I got an early coffee. You did. You got an advanced copy. But, you know, the thing about the book is it's really these issues at different levels um, face women across the sectors. It's not like it's a special sort of environment in Parliament House. Obviously it's acute and I've called it the most unsafe workplace in the country but I I really want the book to be a guide to women across the sectors so that you know if they take one thing out of out of my book that's that's what I want to do I just want to help women because I really genuinely want more women in in leadership positions yeah absolutely so what's next for you then Julia because there will be a lot of people who will now be kind of um, holding their breath that you might be taking another stab at, at politics um, in the years to come. Is that is that on the the radar for you at all? Look, from my perspective, Tala, um, you know, I never say never to anything. <laughs> That's one thing I've learned in life. Um, but at the mo- at, certainly at the moment, I'm you know, my view is that we're in a kind of political paralysis and I would certainly support any woman who is wanting to run, you know, as an independent. I, I just believe the only circuit breaker for our parliament is to have women on the crossbench, women or men on the crossbench with sensible centre progressive views um, where they have the balance of power. Um, when we had that, when I served my term as an independent 
I, it was a completely different experience being an independent. You have an immediate interface with your electorate and your constituents and if you have the balance of power, you can make real and effective change. And one of the changes I'm most proud of that we did as when we had the balance of power was introducing the Medivac legislation, which sadly the Morrison government repealed, but, you know, that made a difference to so many uh, lives and we were able to, you know, advocate very strongly for climate change action. I, I really think Australia would be in a much better place if if um, we had that proper, sensible, rational debate and not this um, sort of party politics that is just paralysing. Yeah, yeah. We need more female independence, um, absolutely, because we can see exactly what they're doing and the power that they have. Um, Thank you so much for writing a book that will help to inform all voters in this country. Um, For anyone looking to pick up our play published by Hardy Grant, you can get it from all major bookshops as well as online. Thanks so much, Tala. It was great to be with you. Wow, Tala, what an interesting interview it was. I mean, she was as candid there as she was on 7.30 last night and she really puts forward some excellent arguments and goes straight in to deliver some key points about some of the changes that we need to to make. I, I really liked what she had to say about quotas there. And I've sort of sensed this as well. I mean, it's one thing, I mean, it's like in anything, it's one thing to say that you're for something, in this case to say you are for quotas. It's a very, very, very different thing to actually take the action needed to implement the measures that will make it happen. And we are not seeing any of that action actually happen right now. No. The government and Scott Morrison in particular are full of hot air when it comes to um, you know, listening to women, caring about women, um, they're saying all the right things. But when it comes to tangible measures um, that will make a difference, we've seen very, very little. And I think that's the point that Julia Banks makes there um, and it's a it's a fair one. And um, the fact that every MP in this government that has been accused of misconduct is still sitting there in a ministry position, um, you know, laughing essentially, <laughs> Um, is, I think, very telling. Mm, Yeah. It's also that idea of taking that measure to create the Women's Task Force is, again, you look at that and you think, yeah, okay, and kind of hastily put together and created this idea that we need to do something, put together this task force. We don't really know what much about what's occurring in that task force in terms of the agenda. We know that Prime Minister Scott Morrison is co-chairing it with um, Minister for Women, Senator Maurice Payne, um, but what we do know now is also, as we spoke about in the last podcast, is that Barnaby Joyce has a seat on that women's task force. So, again, it's like one thing to say that you're going to do these random things and, you know, even to take the first steps in setting up a committee, making a plan, a plan to have a plan, whatever it is, it's another thing to actually use it to implement real measures that will make a difference to your party and will make a difference to Australian women. Yeah, that show that you're actually serious. Um, and I, I Again, I think that that is just something that is seriously lacking um, on the part of this government. So watch this space, but I really commend Julia Banks for being so open, so genuine. On to some lighter notes, a lot lighter notes. (laughs) We don't usually do this, but it is um, for many millions of Australians, we are in lockdown Um, And for many millions of other Australians, you're probably just looking for some good recommendations and there's no better place to come to than Angela and Tyler for some great 
you know, hard hitting, truly, you know, highbrow recommendations around what to go and stream right now. It's so true. Um, do you know what? I, well, I binged all seasons of Younger within about two weeks, which is something I'm not overly proud of. I, I know um, that you did that because you kept texting me about it. So, yes. <laughs> and I, I swung fiercely back from being a Charles fan <laughs> to a Josh fan. It was all very, it was emotionally draining. Um, but for anyone not watching Younger, please do because it is honestly a life changer. Well, I, I like Younger that, I mean, first of all, it is kind of funny. It's easy to watch. It's just sort of, you know, it is fantasy um beautiful fashion great to see new york it's about publishing and books and ideas and and it goes a lot further than the pre- the initial premise of the storyline which was the idea that um you know this 40 year old woman had to kind of pose as a 26 27 year old woman in order to go and get a job as an assistant in publishing because she'd been out of the workforce for so long and that idea she'd been out of the workforce for I think around you know maybe 18 or so years when she left to go and have her her daughter at a relatively young age and she proves to be really great at her job and she kind of has to keep up this idea of pretending to be younger um and it just shows, it kind of highlights the, you know, obviously ageism, sexism that is occurring out there. But um, moving beyond that storyline, there are a lot of fun storylines in that that just make it entertaining to watch. And I love like the friendships in the, among the characters. So yes, I loved Younger. And, and then my last recommendation, sorry, Ange, I know I'm being a bit greedy here in this in this section, which is really where I've come alive. Um, <laughs> but I have been watching, there's a really good um, murder show about, I've got to find the name of it. Um, well, that's going to be hard to recommend, isn't it? Goodness, this is really bad. Um, I can go to my recommendations while you are trying to figure out the name said murder I'll show. I'll find the title. So, okay, mine are on Stan. Okay, sounds this sounds terrible. Show called Girls Five Ever. It's about four women and they're in their forties who were once popular, who were once you know part of this popular nineties uh, girl band. They reunite. Their careers have kind of gone completely off track. One's a dentist now. One is working in a restaurant. One is trying to you know hold on to her former days of stardom. Um, so again, it kind of has that sort of ageist. Uh, thing in it as well like we're talking about in younger that why shouldn't women in their 40s be able to be in a band and be just as famous and well known as they were when they were in their their 20s and to be able to make music and and get an audience and that kind of thing yeah that's a really fun watch as well and then another one about a girl band is also on stan and it's called we are lady parts and it's about this like punk rock band made up of muslim women and it smashes every stereotype and just again a really nice series about friendship and supporting each other and just you know living and going about your your passions as well and my final recommendation before we go to uh your murder mystery which i'm dying to hear the name of i'm not going to recommend this one it's almost more of an admission that i am watching this one and it is you know last night massive bout of insomnia I started watching the number one show in Australia on Netflix right now, which is a show called Sex Life. And it is basically about a married woman who uh, has, um, you know, the perfect life from the outside. She's got a, a preschooler and she's just had another baby. 
and she starts fantasizing about all the um the sex that she had before she met her current husband and all the passionate encounters and particularly this one ex-boyfriend who is played by quite a remarkable Australian man. It's <laughs> um, putting it lightly. The acting is terrible. The writing is terrible. There are some good uh, passionate Ooh. scenes that are, you know, nice to sort of watch when you can't sleep and you're sort of feeling a little bit down in lockdown and want to go and kind of live a different life. <laughs> And I will say, and if you've seen it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There is a scene in episode three that I did not know was coming. And it, <laughs> I cannot do a spoiler here because that would be terrible. I've since gone and found, as I went and Googled this later on, that it has become like an internet sensation and is everywhere on social media. But um, you watch it, you know what I'm talking about. And I actually, I remember, Tyler, that was the one that I messaged you um, before our news meeting. I'm like, I, I just don't know where to go today because this happened. Yes. I will go back and watch Sex Life. I am intrigued. Um, mine couldn't be further away from Sex Life. I mean, this story is so so horrific. So the the show that I watched was called Sophie, a murder in West Cork, and it follows the story of Sophie Toscan Duplantia, who is a, a French woman um, who travelled to Cork in Ireland, um, and she was really brutally murdered there. Um, but it follows the story of um, it's you know it's a bit of a whodunit kind of um, story and case, but they look at the rollout of that and. Um, and essentially all all kind of signs point to this one person um and at the end of it you're just left with this sinking feeling because you know the the course of justice is just horrific and you just can see how this would happen to could happen to so so many women and probably has happened to so many female victims over over history so um watch it it will I, I wouldn't watch it by yourself and probably not if you're in a bad frame of mind but it is um it's definitely a really compelling um and chilling watch what is it called it's called sophie a murder in west cork uh, so i'm not going to be watching that at this point but thank you for the recommendation <laughs> <laughs> keep going with sex life <laughs> Maybe in a few months' time when hopefully the world is in a very different situation. That's it for the episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Tyla. Thanks, Ange. Thank you for listening to the Women's Agenda podcast. A reminder that all the stories that we have discussed you will find on our website at womensagenda.com.au where you can also subscribe to our daily newsletter that will hit your inbox just before lunchtime. Thank you to my co-founder, Tala. Thank you also to Julia Banks for sharing that excellent, candid interview. And a reminder also that you can go and listen to the Leadership Lessons where you can find uh, this week's episode with Michaela Jade that I just mentioned. And you can also go back and listen to a number of different episodes there of different female leaders uh, who look at how to lead for the critical decade ahead. Thank you for listening.